This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello and welcome to Speaker for the Living. My name is Seth Dare. I'm here with JJ Genflone. Hello, JJ. What up, world? How's everybody doing? So we're going to have our first podcast where we talk about policy in the Trump era with the Trump administration. The first one is going to address the uh, travel ban or otherwise known as the not Muslim ban or the official name protecting the nation from foreign terrorist entry into the United States. Mm-hmm. And sort of some of the concerns, even though that doesn't sound perhaps right off off the bat like something that's going to relate to trafficking, um, this is a policy that is probably going to have immediate repercussions for people at risk. And why is that, JJ? <laughs> Glad you asked, Seth. So any the the main thing is something called a chilling effect. So anytime you have a government policy, particularly a federal policy, so from the highest level, coming out that marginalizes an already stigmatized group or an already vulnerable group, the likelihood of that group then reaching out through official channels for assistance is really rare. So by banning um, people from these seven countries, but with the even if these if even if people are not necessarily foreign nationals or ethnically identify as being from these seven countries that are under the 90 day ban, by being Muslim or being perceived to be Muslim by the outside community and with the rhetoric that surrounded the ban, a lot of these people in this vulnerable population who might be in the U.S. in a trafficking or exploited labor situation may be afraid to go um, to police, uh, first responders, ER doctors, you know, generally people on the front lines um, who are providing sort of that first contact and access to safety for people who in trafficking. And if you're afraid because you've heard on the news the rhetoric surrounding, you know, people that look like you or people who are Muslim or people who are perceived to be Muslim, that this is now a hostile environment. Um, and you've also heard now from, you know, the president of the United States that your kind is unwelcome here. Your likelihood of, of wanting to try and gain access to services is greatly diminished. Um, also, there's a sort of insidious part where this ban could be used by traffickers um, for when people are in the country, um, if they are brought in illegally or with false documents um, under this ban. So if they are, for example, um, let's say that they've come in through Saudi Arabia, which is not on the ban list, but ethnically they are not Saudi Arabia, ethnically they're Syrian. Um, so if you have that sort of thing happen, there might be even more of a fear that I'm not going to go forward and talk to the police. I'm not going to go forward and kind of seek uh, legal help. I'm not going to call 911 and out myself um, as having come into the country illegally, even if I'm now in an incredibly dangerous circumstance, because to out myself um, of having broken this law seems equally dangerous. 
Um, so it's kind of a like a like a one-two punch sort of where it encourages people who have entered under sort of very unique circumstances from feeling like they can come forward and that those that can't even legally come forward feel like they shouldn't. And this is what's hard, I think. Um, and certainly I think Seth, you can talk about this a little bit better than I can because of, of your, of your background and kind of looking at psychological coercion. This is, this is in many ways, this is a psychologically coercive thing, right? Cause people are just afraid. It's not as easily sort of quantified as, you know, a financial fear. It's, it's that people are nervous about coming forward for a variety of reasons that are largely contextual. Well, anytime anyone goes to another country, so even I as an American going to the UK where they speak English, where we have a lot of similarities in the culture. So even then, I don't know all of the cultural norms within that nation, let alone any subcultures within that nation. I don't understand all of the laws. Um, in the UK, I, I would likely trust the cops. In some other countries, I would be less likely to. And, and that's me as an American, where lots of people cater to my language and such. And, and, and I say all that, even me as a tourist, with good intentions, who is going somewhere else that I still have, would have challenges. And so if you're going from another country as a student or um, to find work or to visit family or because you have a job opportunity that somebody says you have and you come over, you don't always know when you're being lied to you don't understand all the things that are norms within American culture, let alone a part of American culture. You don't know who to trust necessarily. You might not know all the language. Even if you know the language, you probably don't know all of the different idioms. And that is the sort of thing taken advantage of by traffickers or people who are highly controlling for exploitive purposes. Yeah, and I think that so when we talk about contextualities, that's what you brought up at the beginning. The language one is a is a huge thing. Mm -hmm. So sort of this interpretation of, I think um, a lot of times in the West we have the sort of false interpretation because of this whole narrative of we're a melting pot, we're a mix. One of the the biggest misconceptions is that if someone is in the United States, that someone will always have access to someone who speaks their language. Um, and patently, this is not the case. Um, and we've seen now with some media reports of people who have been, just because of the rhetoric surrounding this and sort of the, the fear and concerns, that, you know, even wearing a hijab or other religious garb outside, speaking Arabic um, or your local dialect can honestly make you now a, a target um, for race-based violence. Um, and so you run into a situation now of not only are people afraid to come forward, but when they do come forward, how do they communicate their needs if they don't speak English? And that is, a, is an added difficult issue. And that's where when we talk about sort of human trafficking of uh, Western nationals from English-speaking countries outside of their country of origin, it's, it's far rarer with adults just because of the, the widespread sort of prominence of English throughout the world. 
Mm -hmm. Well, and I recently heard an anecdote from somebody, I believe it was on Indivisible, the podcast, where uh, a Muslim woman who actually works for a security contractor and has for a long time after this all has taken place, had her, her co-workers start chiding her, do we know that you're vetted? (sighs) If that sort of person who has proven themselves, who is protecting our country and has resources is facing that, then who, you know, anyone could be facing that who is a Muslim in this country. Mm-hmm. And regardless of what you think of, of of anyone thinks about the Muslim ideology, whether it's religion, whether it's political, etc., that's not a good recipe when anyone can be treated as a threat. And specifically for trafficking, that just further marginalizes people. Also, when you look at somebody and you don't know whether they're from Iraq, Iran, or or, or elsewhere. If, if this gets extended to other people based on how they look, then marginalization can happen even if they're not from the countries on the list. Yeah, very much so. And I think the other thing there, the other thing there too is sort of in human trafficking, we have this ongoing issue with the perception of people either as victims or criminals. And unfortunately, that's often sort of that initial response is in the eye of the beholder of whatever the first responder is that's in contact. So say, let's just with when someone's picked up by the police. Um, so we'll use sort of a common thing in, in sex trafficking. So someone's picked up by the police for loitering. And to make this sort of a, a less complicated social issue in the United States, we'll say it is a woman loitering uh, in the evening. Uh, in a known spot where uh, street prostitution is common, picked up by the police. Once you've been picked up by the police um, and you're being detained, now is the question of how do the police treat you? Do you feel comfortable if you are being trafficked to tell them to say, help me? Have you been conditioned not to trust police officers? Or do you trust them? Can you communicate with them at all? And once you do communicate with them and tell them what your feelings are and sort of your situation, what is the likelihood that they're going to believe you? Or what is the likelihood that they're going to think, no, this person is just lying. They're trying to get out of, trying to get out of trouble and, and sort of lying to me and spinning a yarn. And what has been found in a number of studies, and I'll I'll link to the the particular articles. They are academic, so you kind of have to hunt them down. But I will will link you to those. But one of the things that they found is that depending on the police's willingness to believe someone's is largely tied to ethnicity and perception of that ethnicity. And then if the cop is himself or, or the police woman or whoever, uh, if they have had experience with that ethnic group, that has been a positive or a negative, or if they themselves are a member of that ethnic group. So what we're seeing is that when even when cops aren't intending 
to be racist um, or nationalistic. There is this bias that is present. And so what concerns me more than just like the actual reality of the Muslim ban, and I'm, you know, I think I'm making my feelings on it now by referring to it as that, um, is that we're positing that to be Muslim or to be Middle Eastern, you know, more, more narrowly perhaps, uh, is to be dangerous, is to be a terrorist. And if you're dangerous and a terrorist, uh, it is to not be trustworthy. So I wonder if a man is picked up for working without a permit, what is the likelihood that they're going to be believed? And that's just another little facet of sort of difficulty. The other concern that I have more broadly um, with the Muslim ban is the inclusion of certain countries and the exclusion of other countries. Mm-hmm. Seth, I know you and I had talked about this in the previous podcast, the, the Thanks Obama one. But one of my one of my concerns with it is that even though this was uh, apparently made by a previous administration but acted on, is that when this um, executive order was signed into effect, that we uh, that Saudi Arabia was not included by the United States. Uh, and that to me is very like a, a very dangerous, dangerous situation. Right. Well, and it's where it's hard to totally get away from politics, even so far with this administration. If yeah. politics are the major issue, it, it is hard to know what motives are with some things. Like Saudi Arabia has been a challenge because they've had issues with trafficking and as have other countries. And so it's like, do we drop them down, but then we might have to have sanctions and we get oil and, you know, we need certain countries, even if they have issues. And so it's this tension about whether we want to penalize allies or frenemies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, and you see in the trafficking in persons report, the tip report being used by some organizations as sort of uh, a blame or shame Mm -hmm. document where you're ranking as a, as a tier one through a tier three with tier one being the best tier three being the worst, um, being this thing, a, a thing that can be used to impose sanctions based on the feeling of the secretary of state. And so, and you know, it's rare for countries that the U S is friendly with or has trade agreements with, or are sort of longstanding arrangements, even if they do deserve a three to get that three. Likewise, countries that are showing slight improvement, who who maybe under a very kind coder could you know jump from say a tier two watch list to a tier two, uh, doesn't seem to happen if they are from a country that is you know uh, considered a political enemy of the United States. Uh, and this is a shame because things like the tip report and then uh, the Chinese government, I will say, has their own version of the tip report, but they do not publish it in English. So it's kind of limited due to the fact that it's just not in the lingua franca of most worldwide policymakers. Um, But, you know, you have this great document and this great sort of like base for research that a lot of people just immediately toss out because they're like, well, it's a political document. It's not an academic one. And there's a difference between the two. So to get a bit into the uh, policy of this and then come back around to how that can once again affect trafficking. 
where we are currently at is yeah. uh, federal judges, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has upheld the restraining order blocking the government from enforcing the executive order. Uh, regardless of what you think of that or whether who's on the right side of legality, that's where it's currently at. Now, looking at the executive order itself, uh, there's lots of things we could say. I, I, I personally have done a research paper on foreign sleeper terrorists and how they entered the United States. Largely, they don't. Uh, people who come here, when you read their profiles, there appears to be little or no past transgressions. Uh, radicalization seems to happen later, so whether this would actually achieve the desired ends and whether it's based on good theory is questionable, but that also makes it easier to apply blankly if you consider a person bad. As uh, Trump says, we need to keep bad people out, but what does that mean? Now, in saying all this, that's not to say that there's no room for improvement in our system, but we do have lots of checks and do a pretty good job of stopping terrorists. Uh, I'll link to the Heritage Foundation's list of foreign Islamic terrorists stopped since 9-11. Uh, it's now up to over 80. The vast majority of them um, were not known terrorists before enter based on data. Uh, it also shows most of them were not foreign. So that aside, this primarily does two things. It puts a 90-day ban on people from, what was it, seven countries? Although it, ha it uh, gives itself the right to add more countries to it. And then it is a 120-day refugee ban. And in both cases, it's time for a review and to make changes. I would be more confident of that if we had more than a uh, skeleton crew in the Trump administration. There's still a lot of people that need to be put in place, which is helpful if you want to do things like upgrade security and, and such. But there's also a few other things that this does. Uh, it talks about implementing a uni uniform screaming standards for all immigration programs. One of the issues with interviews is, uh, and, and uh, this applies to uh, asylum and refugees as well, is there's mm -hmm. a lot of discretion involved. Whether this would actually address that, don't know. But it also suspends the visa waiver program. The visa waiver program is a reciprocal arrangement with 38 countries, such as the UK and New Zealand, where people don't have to get visas. The logic behind this is partially to uh, encourage tourism and business travel. It also makes it easier for Americans to travel to other countries without having to get a visa. So it's nice to be able to go to certain countries in Europe and not have to get a visa, I can say from experience. and. It also is based on a risk mitigation perspective, and this can apply to even things like trafficking, that people I've talked to, like people I've talked to at DIA who uh, work with TSA there, are looking at this from a, a risk mitigation perspective of we don't want to spend equal time on everybody 
because if we're spending equal time on everybody, not only is it going to make everything take longer, so in the case of an airport, not only is it going to make the queues much longer and increase the level of staffing that's required, but it's going to make it less likely that you're going to spend more time on people who might be threats. And so if we're increasing the amount of time to have everybody go through an interview, whatever extreme vetting means, considering that people from some of these countries are already more highly vetted than other people, <laughs> that we have a time-consuming process that makes it harder to enter the U.S. unless they vastly increase staffing. That security sounds good, but then when you start doing all these things, and, and we've seen this in the United States already, that this can also have unintended consequences. There's unintended consequences for lots of things, and drug traffickers spend lots of money to figure out how to get into our country. Terrorists have training programs on faking visas and going through other countries to get different visas, etc. It's there is no such thing as 100% security. Yeah, and this also too, as you can see, is you know not to get too far away from the topic itself into kind of sort of wider social justice issues, mm -hmm. but all of this is predicated on the idea of the focus being on that external threats, threats from the outside world are far more dangerous to the American public and even sort of the, um, like the state itself, America, um, than sort of domestic or internal threats or, uh, you know, internal individualistic actors. And we're seeing now with sort of the, the rise of extremism, if we're just going to focus on sort of violent terroristic Mm -hmm. um, experiences we're seeing that there is a focus on or an increasing tendency for people trying to radicalize people who are within the country so people who are already citizens and hold positions so um and like positions in their in their local community so people who are already by virtue of birth or naturalization citizens it's not for the most part, if you actually look at the statistics, people who have been granted refugee or asylum status, who have gone through that actual court process, been vetted, had all that documentation, and are now entering the United States um, with literally like reams of paperwork. Um, but again, it's it's uh, in times of struggle, it's quite common for, for states to, to scapegoat for someone. The problem here, um, what I think is particularly interesting for these sort of little Trump on trafficking updates we're giving everyone, is that this current executive order by the U.S. president sets up a scapegoat um, that is a wide variety of people who people, when they need to migrate, people will migrate any way possible. And when you make barrier to entry larger, for people, that increases their their vulnerability to trafficking and exploitation. Right. And for both of us to be a little more clear, uh, debt is one of the primary means. When yeah. it's expensive, people will pay people they shouldn't pay. It would be one thing if they could 
pay at the border or pay through a visa process. Um, there are like like uh, Alex, I forget his last name at uh, Cato Institute. Yeah, he thinks you could have an immigration tariff, but in that case, you're going through the system. When you're going through a trafficker, or you're going through one or two labor brokers, mm -hmm. any of them could give you a contract that may or may not be your final contract, and they'll charge you a lot of money either to get across or for processing fees. And this has already happened with smuggling from Mexico, that as we made it harder, the cost went up, and people are still paying it. And so then they come into the country under more debt, and then people take advantage of that. And debt bondage for a certain period of time is a worldwide phenomenon. And in particular, I, I think for a lot of people who aren't um, sort of who are sort of new to the trafficking field or are kind of used to this idea of sort of the debt bondage of it. When we're talking about substantial amounts of money, we're talking about a debt that you cannot crawl out from in most cases. Um, and this is also a debt that is a financial debt that is normally rolling. And what that means is that you may have, as Seth mentioned, sort of uh, initial contract. Okay. This is how much it's going to cost say to get a visa, get a plane ticket, um, arrive in the U.S., have a place to stay. And then along the way, you get all these extra additional charges added on by the trafficker or the trafficking organization because organized crime kind of plays into this as well. So now suddenly the amount has doubled or tripled and they're charging you room and board. They're charging you um, uh, with your time labor. So they're saying, okay, well, work for us, you know, from – for a certain period of time and that'll pay it off, but you're still in gathering fees while you're working for them. And this is why we see sort of generational debt bondage is the thing that happens quite often in human trafficking because it is not sufficient, um, a sufficient way to make a living and survive and still pay off this debt. Also bear in mind that even if the traffickers themselves don't travel with the victim to say the United States, they often have connections that are collecting that money and keeping track of those people in the U.S. while still having a presence at home. And this home, if especially if it's in a place of conflict or if the people trying to travel are already a vulnerable group that sort of society uh, isn't giving a lot of protection to or the government that they're fleeing isn't giving a lot of protection to, you run into this thing where people aren't going to go against the trafficker because the trafficker knows their family in their town. Um, and so there's the threat of, well, I might survive if I go to the police. As we talked about in a previous podcast, I might get that U visa and be able to stay. But what happens to sort of the extended family network that I've left behind? Are they now at risk? Mm -hmm. And then there's the way that this was implemented a uh, little over a week ago. Yeah, that the the method through which it was implemented via executive order, I think really reflects sort of then that fear that people have about moving forward because there's sort of this perception that they're uh, not welcome or don't count. Well, and to approach this from a, a narrative point of view, you know, there there are the people who say 
Trump administration is concerned about the bad ones. You know, there's people who say it's about we want you to come through legally. We want you to play by the rules. We want you to assimilate, etc. We want to be unified. So the way this plays out, and I'll try is to put motives aside or projecting motives. We have this implemented without everybody in Homeland and Border Patrol knowing the nuance of what's going on and how to implement it. We have people who have gone through the visa process legally, who have been approved, who were stopped, that it was applied to green card holders who are legal permanent residents who have jumped through lots of hoops to get to that point and who feel safe, their their status is safe and that they should have nothing to worry about. And when people have spent money on tickets, then they get their trips blocked or stopped or delayed. Then they have to spend more money for tickets as well as the inconvenience of it all. That all sends a really bad message, and it sends it not just to people from those countries. It sends it to people who are legal permanent residents. It says all of you are potentially suspect. All of you who are not citizens are potentially vulnerable if we decide to do so. The way this is implemented communicates that. So if you were to apply the best of motives to the administration, they really screwed up in that case because this is not going to make people feel comfortable. It's going to make a number of people question their status and feel marginalized. So we keep using these terms again and again of vulnerability and being marginalized And the reason for that is that when you are vulnerable, when you are marginalized, when you are a member of a population that is heavily stigmatized or sort of othered, period, you are then um, more likely to be trafficked just because your support networks are incredibly small or low, Um, your ability for self-determination is affected, And just your willingness to take risks to improve your life situation, like that just goes up. So anytime we are modifying um, refugee processes or asylum processes and making them more difficult or more strident, and anytime we are kind of wholesale imposing limits on sort of the, the free movement of people, we're increasing the likelihood that trafficking will go up. Whether or not that limiting of movement is good for one particular country or not. It's just that globally it makes trafficking more likely. And so as an individual, you then kind of have to make the decision yourself about what, what is more important to you and your life and, and sort of your idea of identity and security, you know, is it, no, I want the most amount of people humanly possible, or is it that I need to agree with certain security measures or I want to agree with security measures, but only if they're done in a particular way or through a particular process. Um, and I think that's why we're seeing sort of a interesting breakdown now in terms of the, the ongoing court 
sort of battle that is occurring surrounding this executive um, order in particular with a focus on, you know, the legality of imposing limits on people. Well, and the, the message or narrative that uh, immigrants or visitors feel to our country has an impact uh, as a study called Human Trafficking in Kentucky that I'll share says, uh, I'll read point four. It's one of the themes they found in their research. The media plays an important role in increasing barriers or reinforcing fears that keep immigrant victims from seeking help. For example, immigrants in general may perceive very negative messages from the media, such as the U.S. doesn't like immigrants and doesn't want them in America, they have no voice or rights in America, that the police or government not only won't help them but may actually hurt them, such as deport them or put them in jail, or that in general they are not just valued as people in American society. Note, this was not written in the past couple years. <laughs> And traffickers will certainly and do use these methods. Uh, and when I say traffickers, I mean even a family who has a domestic servant. There's examples where they've used this narrative, like don't talk to anyone, don't talk to the police, or you'll just get deported, or you'll be put in jail. I'm not wanting to get into whose fault it is in that respect, but to say when people hear this, it tells them something, and it, and based on survey here, it makes victims less likely to seek help, and that's a problem, and that makes it easier for traffickers and leads to more trafficking. Well, and that brings us to one of the themes that isn't discussed as much as we want it to be, and that's protection and vic victim assistance Mm -hmm. which also requires victim identification and processes for helping victims. As we've said, like with uh, T visas and U visas, there, there are systems in place. But everybody who is coming in, yes, there are good people and there are, there's likely to be some bad people, but there are also victims. There are people being played there are people being in the process of being trafficked or on either side of being trafficked. And that is not as much a part of this whole discussion as we would like it to be. And at the very least, we want to bring that to your attention, that there are also victims in the mix. And as we in our nation talk about more vetting, yeah, I would hope that they are looking at identifying victims along with all of this. So any other thoughts on that as we uh, head toward a conclusion, JJ? Uh, just that if, you know, clearly Seth and I are both Americans and we're, we're broadcasting out of the U.S., but just to sort of note that if you are from one of these sort of um, large hegemonic superpowers in the world, um, know that any policy you make um, that impacts the flow of people is going to impact human trafficking. And so there is a balancing sort of act you're doing there in terms of your decisions have direct impact on humans' access to dignity. And so that's, that's a thing to consider if you're a policymaker. So if you're in D.C. right now and you're listening to this, just consider, in particular, refugee and asylum seekers. Consider them. 
to again mention Polaris and their hotline yes. that uh, if you have a concern about human trafficking because you see a situation or if you wonder yourself whether you're in an exploitive situation their hotline is 888-373-7888 again that's 888-373-7888 uh, they also have a, a text line which is be free or the number 233-733. Yeah, and also what's important to know, I think, about Polaris is they will find um, translators and whatnot. So even if it's something where, where you met someone um, and, and you think that maybe they need to call directly, um, but they're not confident necessarily making that call in English, you can certainly just pass that number on and Polaris will find someone to speak with them. Going forward, what we have discussed, because there is a lot of change, because people voted for change, so. And by a lot of change, we mean a constant roller coaster of uh, executive orders or sort of um, proposed policy that is being rolled out very quickly. So it's kind of every single day. Now, Seth and I have signed up something that we want to get on and podcast and share with y'all. So to that end. Right. So going forward, we'll have uh, some more podcasts more frequently that are shorter, which uh, some of you I'm sure will appreciate because it's easier to get through a short podcast. That uh, depends on the topics. So we will be back soon. Yep. We will see you. Well, not see you. We'll hear you all very soon. And as usual, if you have any questions, comments, or things you would like us to remark on, um, particularly in this ever-changing political climate, please be sure to leave us a remark at speakerfortheliving.com. All right, bye guys. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.